I'm Ina Beth Miller, and I'm the director of Gutman Library at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome all of you tonight here tonight to what is for us a rather special occasion. This evening comes as the capstone of a day-long conference, a conference which has been characterized by a diversity of opinion, by a range of workshops, dealing with a great many sensitive and difficult issues by ideas that have circulated, germinated, and been provocative throughout the day by people, a great many people, who have come together to think about and talk about and look at issues of diversity. The people who have been here today were the greatest collection or the largest collection of Harvard Graduate School of Education faculty that has ever been assembled around a single issue. The people who were gathered here today represented schools, teachers, principals, superintendents, librarians, teachers, represented publishing houses, editors, authors, People gathered here today to look at deeply and sensitively and sincerely and justly issues of diversity in our country which are troubling each of us at this moment. And tonight there have come together under the auspices of American Pen, which is an organization of publishers, editors, newspaper people and authors has come together 10 wonderful people who have given of their time and their energy and have agreed to read tonight from books that have been banned in schools within the last few years because each of them care very deeply about this subject. And so I'm not going to talk to you anymore about censorship or diversity because I think you're here tonight because you're ready to listen, because you want to listen, because you care. I bring to you tonight, representing American Pen, who will introduce the remainder of the night's program, Ms. Ellen Binder. Thank you. On behalf of Pen American Center, I want to welcome you to our second evening of Forbidden Books. I just want to note first there's a change in the program. John Leonard will not be here tonight. He has the flu. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Penn, I'd like to tell you it's an international organization of writers founded over 60 years ago in London to promote and protect freedom of expression around the world. While the traditional focus of Penn has been the plight of imprisoned writers in foreign countries. The American Center of Penn has turned one eye inward to examine the conditions of writers and written expression in our own country. The type of book censorship addressed by today's conference and with which we are concerned tonight is in fact a remarkably American phenomenon. It is interesting to compare literary censorship in say the Soviet Union or South Africa or Argentina a censorship imposed aggressively by an oppressive government 
to local book censorship in the United States, a rather ill-defined grassroots effort by local church leaders, individual parents, an unlikely consortium of pressure groups such as the Council on Interracial Books, the Eagle Forum, and the Moral Majority, and even by librarians and school administrators. One might say that the form that book censorship has taken in the United States is the only American thing about it. For the end result of any form of censorship, whether by an oppressive government or John Doe, is to cut off access to ideas and finally, to stifle expression. Those who censor books see words and ideas as the harbinger of destruction. To them, Brave New World encourages drug addiction, sexual promiscuity, anti-Christianity, and secular humanism. And a catcher in the rye is, a reason, is the reason that teenage pregnancy and school crime is at an all-time high. A fear of words, Language and ideas is exposed by every book challenge. Words, language, and ideas have become roadblocks to understanding. I'm reminded of a literary critic in Alabama, a local minister who recoiled in disbelief at the suggestion that works by John Steinbeck are literary classics. Sin is not classic, he said. Sin is sin. It is simple to laugh and shrug off a serious critique of Steinbeck, but this local minister, with the support of 49 others, successfully limited student access to two Steinbeck novels, East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath, in high schools throughout Calhoun County, Alabama. As many of you know here tonight, this is not an isolated incident. A survey recently published by the American Civil Liberties Union of Minnesota, for instance, indicated that between 1979 and 1981, there were 346 attempts to remove works of literature from school libraries in that state alone. A school board in a town outside St. Louis, Missouri, recently ordered 34 of what were largely young adult novels to be banned from the school district and authorized a school principal, as if we were an anti-ballistic missile or kamikaze pilot, to censor and destroy any book he deemed pornographic. And in Oklahoma, the state legislature passed a non-binding resolution which very strongly encouraged all public school teachers only to use textbooks and fictional materials that depict women in traditional family roles. Nor are literary works the only books affected. Biology texts, long under pressure by religious groups for the way they present evolution, are now being revised, dropping direct references to evolution and even to the name Charles Darwin. And one text has replaced that ungodly word with the phrase, growth and development over time. Texts of higher mathematics, such as algebra, geometry, and calculus, are being criticized for not promoting absolute values. Various groups and individuals have complained that social studies texts overemphasize the role of ethnic and racial minorities in their discussions of American history. Others maintain that these texts contain too many positive aspects of communism, as did one social studies textbook which mentioned that the Soviet Union is the world's largest producer of cereal grains. 
And one need only note that the McGuffey Reader, a grade school primer used extensively in public schools during a great part of the 19th century and in the early years of our own century, is enjoying a sudden rebirth in elementary schools around the country because it extols an uncomplicated patriotism and wholesome moral virtues. Book censorship has posed a grave threat to the character and quality of public education and with it to the future vitality of intellectual life in America. It should come as no surprise then that writers are concerned about the rage to ban literary works from public schools and libraries. Bernard Malamud, a former president of American Pen, whose novel The Fixture was banished for seven years from the school libraries and English classes of the Island school, Trees School District, once cautioned a gathering of Penn members about those writers who shy away from involvement in the defense of freedom of expression because it interferes with the act of writing. One such writer may say, said Mr. Malamud, I want my books because they dignify man, because they, they too reach for freedom. My books will ultimately defend my rights. To him, said Mr. Malamud, or to her, I must say that the fixer out of the public schools by command of the school board does not defend me. I must defend it. The American Right to Read project of Penn is a is, was established in response to those words. Through it, writers venture into communities where their books are being challenged, speak with parents, librarians, teachers, school administrators, and of course students about why they write why they choose to use the words they choose in their writing, and finally, what the value of access to a variety of ideas is in a democracy. In other words, they defend their books, and by extension, they defend all works of literature. I will not introduce tonight's readers. I think they can introduce themselves, except I will say that the first reader tonight is William Phillips, who will be reading from The Fixer. He's the editor of the Partisan Review. And none of the readers tonight are, except for Anthony Burgess, are banned authors. They are not so esteemed. Uh, however, they are all concerned about the censorship of literature, and they're all concerned for the readers who will not be able to have that literature. And so tonight, we lay aside our usual rhetoric of the writer defending the book, and we let these forbidden books defend themselves. William Phillips. I'm going to read from this terrible book, The Fixer. Uh, as you were just told, and as many of you know, the uh, This book was banned because it was presumably <coughs> offensive to the Jews, it was anti-Semitic. It also had a few four-letter words that no good American ever uses. <coughs> uh, aside from the fact that the text is uh, just the opposite of anti-Semitic and really is, uh, illustrates the the terrible nature of anti-Semitism. Anybody who knows Malamud personally or knows anything about his writing career realizes that if, 
that if it weren't a scandal, it'd be a joke to accuse Malamud of being anti-Semitic. Uh, I can't read the whole book tonight, so I'm going to read only a few pages, which have, as I, I think there are a couple of dirty words in there, and uh, a few remarks about Jews, which obviously pollute the minds of young and old in this country. <coughs> uh, I'm reading at page 21, where the uh, main character, whose name is Yaakov uh, uh, Bach, is leaving his small town. It's called a shtetl in Yiddish, and trying to make his way to Kiev. And he's, uh, uh, <coughs> he's riding on horseback on an old nag that can barely walk. And he's just gotten to the river on which Kiev is situated. It was freezing cold, but the wind was down on the, uh, in, in Russian, it's, it's, I'm pronouncing it in the Russian way, it's called Dnieper. It's, it's spelled Dnieper, but it's really pronounced Dnieper. There was no ferry, the boatman said, closed down, closed, shut. He waved his arms as though talking to a foreigner, although Yaakov had spoken to him in Russian. Yaakov, I, I, I should, should have said, and it should be obvious, is a Jew, that the ferry had stopped running, sharpened the fixer's desire to get across the river. He hoped to rent a bed at an inn and wake early to look for work. I'll row you across for a ruble, the boatman said. Am I too close to this? No. All right. Too much, Yaakov answered. Is this all right? Too much, Yaakov answered, though deadly tired. Which way to the bridge? Six or eight versts, a long way for the same thing. A ruble, the fixer groaned. Who's got that much money? You can take it or leave it. It's no easy thing rowing across a dangerous river on a pitch black night, we might both drown. What would I do with my horse? The fixer spoke more to himself. That's none of my business. The boatman, his shoulders like a tree trunk and wearing a shaggy grizzled beard, blew out one full nostril on a rock, then the other. The white of his right eye was streaked with blood. Look, mate. Why do you make more trouble than it's worth? Even if I could haul it across, which I can't, the beast will die on you. It doesn't take a long look to see he's on his last legs. Look at him trembling. Listen to him breathing like a gored bull. I was hoping to sell him in Kiev. What fool would buy a bag of old bones? I thought maybe a horse butcher or someone, at least a skin. I say the horse is dead, said the boatman, but you can save a ruble if you're smart. I'll take him for the course of the trip. It's a bother to me, and I'll be lucky to get 50 kopecks for the carcass, but I'll do you the favor, seeing you're a stranger. He's only giving me trouble, the fixer thought. He stepped into the rowboat with his bag of tools, books, 
and other parcels. The boatmen untied the boat, dipped both oars into the water, and they were off. The nag, tethered to a paling, watched from the moonlit shore. Like an old Jew he looks, thought the fixer. The fixer is obviously uh, Jacob. He's a sort of handyman, that's why he's called the fixer. The horse whinnied, and when that proved useless, fought it loudly. I don't recognize the accent you speak, said the boatman, pulling the oars. It's Russian, but from what province? I've lived in Latvia as well as other places, the fixer muttered. At first I thought you were a goddamn Pole. Pan hooses, panny watses. The boatman laughed and snickered. Or maybe a motherfucking Jew. But though you're dressed like a Russian, you look more like a German. May the devil destroy them all, excepting yourself and yours, of course. Latvian, said Yakov. Anyway, God save us all from the bloody Jews, the boatman said as he rode. Those long-nosed, pockmarked, cheating, blood-sucking parasites. They'd rob us of daylight if they could. They foul up earth and air with that body stink and galling breath, garlic breath. And Russia will be done to death by the diseases they spread, unless we make an end to it. A Jew is a devil. It's a known fact. And if you ever watch one peel off his stinking boot, you will see a split hoof. It's true. I know, for as the Lord is my witness, I saw one with my own eyes. He thought nobody was looking, but I saw his hoof as plain as day. He stared at Yaakov with a bloody eye. The fixer's foot itched, but he didn't touch it. Let him talk, he thought, yet he shivered. Day after day, they crap up the motherland. The boatmen went on monotonously, and the only way to save ourselves is to wipe them out. I don't mean kill a jid now and then with a blow of the fist or kick him in the head, but wipe them all out, which we sometimes tried, but never done as it should be done. I say we ought to call our menfolk together, armed with guns, knives, pitchforks, clubs, anything that will kill a Jew. And when the church bells begin to ring, we move on the Jewry quarter, which you can tell by the stink, routing them out of whatever they're hiding, of wherever they're hiding, in attics, cellars, all right. Definitions are pretty awful. I don't mean saying poontang, but I'm not about to read to you definitions. It's pretty terrible. I was covered in a obscenity trial of this hood. Which is the word hood, I guess that's when you're somewhere 
And some people pronounce the word hood hood. I know that I've heard uh, Studs Terkel and, uh, and John Houston. I both heard them say the word hood. Well, it just popped in my head. Sam Hood was arrested and, uh, you know, for the possession of obscene matter, which struck me as kind of obscene charge to begin with. Um, and uh, it was a dirty movie. Long, complicated thing. Every lawyer in the courthouse showed up to watch the dirty movie, and, uh, and they started it off, and it was backwards. So you had to rewind it. So the first scene showed somebody hopping up instead of falling out of the bed, hopping. But the uh, the the dirtiest thing was the language of the indictment, which uh, said, you know, and said nude uh, individual did place his so-and-so in it, it, once you break it down in these sort of uh, abstract terms it really gets really gets kind of unpleasant uh, and i'm uh, sometimes reading some of these definitions i'm tempted to feel that uh, there are some things that you ought to learn in the street But it's in, but I, I could have used this book when I was a kid, and, uh, and I think everybody else. There's a good word in here, get along. Everybody's got a hitch in your get along. I always like that word. Uh, it reminds me of my mother. Instead of saying crotch, one of the euphemisms was strides. She said the word strides. If they, you'd be trying on a new pair of pants in the store, and she'd say they're awful tight in the strides. I always thought that was a great word. <laughs> uh, I don't know what this is. So here's, this is funny little things I've never heard of, expressions. A house Larry is a man who frequents a retail store without buying. <laughs> the house Larry who not only has no intention of buying, but drops in two or three times a week not to buy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I'm something of a house Larry myself. Another one is house moss, the tufts and whirls of dust that accumulate under beds, tables, etc., in rooms seldom cleaned. Not a, not a dirty. Uh, here's, a, here's a word I never heard of. Oots, O-O-N-T-Z, comes from the usual game played with dice, the standard dice game, craps. It's also used as a verb, meaning to crowd, push, or force, as in, this is Billy Rose is cited as saying, I don't think any wire and glass dingbat is going to oots out cheek-to-cheek -cheek dancing. I don't know what that means, but oots seems me. Nice word. Uh, here's spizzerinctum. The fellow, it means vigor. Pep, the fellow who put foresight, science, and spizzerinctum into their business. Here's another one. Spifflicated means drunk. The they become lit, spifflicated, and at long last pie-eyed. There's another definition here uh, under comfortable. Because the word comfortable is defined as drunk. I thought that was uh, that slang or not. Here, uh, there, there's a lot of, you know, all sorts of uh, dubious, uh, it's hard to define some of these words. Th these words were 
I mean, the book was assailed on the grounds of being racist and sexist because of those words they objected to. Uh, in that light, I found this uh, definition interesting. Spook, first definition in brackets, derogatory, a Negro, white man use. Second definition in brackets, derogatory, a white man, Negro use. I thought that was uh, third definition is a girl, especially an ugly or shy girl. I guess that's male using. <laughs> the citation there is, are you having a spook for the Yale Mingle? I like that. <laughs> the Yale Mingle is a nice term. Sounds like kind of a contradiction in terms, but it's a nice term. I think Yaley's mingle with anybody. R wrinkle, word wrinkle means the mother of one sweetheart. Well, uh, it seems to me that um, I've got various notes here that I'm losing, but uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, that slang is uh, one of the last things that uh, any totalitarian regime is ever going to put down. And as such, it's got got a lot of vigor and uh, and it's uh, got a lot of funk too, and uh, it's. Uh, it's a, and this is a good book to read it in. Uh, you know, you can just sort of browse around, and I think a, a kid who, who read this would be stimulated in, in good ways. Uh, I, I was just reading in the Globe today that uh, people have done a psychological uh, study of, uh, of, uh, of gang rapists, group rapists, and uh, that one of the abiding, uh, one of the common symptoms uh, psychological characteristics of these people who've been uh, convicted of, uh, of gang rape is uh, their tendency to divide women into uh, virgins and whores, one or the other, and uh, to uh, you know force whoredom on on uh, on women uh, as a way of, uh, of of debasing them, and that sort of uh, dividing dividing people up into uh, sacred and profane uh, generates a lot of nastiness. And I think uh, same thing's true of language, that people, uh, some people would like to think that there some, uh, some words are virgins and some words are whores. And uh, it's certainly true that a lot of words are frequently used as whores. Uh, love and America spring to mind. But uh, it seemed to me that the best attitude to take toward Words is that uh, words uh, uh, you can use them with relish and respect, and uh, that uh, words uh, like to have a good time, uh, but they won't stand for just anything. I spent a lot of time wondering what it might be mistaken for. Um, a minister in the South who wanted to have the book banned um, said that the devil himself wouldn't read it. And I think maybe there were or are easier marks for the devil. You, know, you can still put some more um, cars out on the highway with radar pickups and open new discos in Key West or, you know, sneak sugar into sugarless breakfast cereal or whatever. But when you find a sensibility like Steinbeck, sometimes it's not very easy to come up against. 
Uh, I'm just going to read uh, the beginning of chapter 13 of East of Eden. Sometimes a kind of glory lights up the mind of a man. It happens to nearly everyone. You can feel it growing or preparing like a fuse burning toward dynamite. It is a feeling in the stomach, a delight of the nerves, of the forearms. The skin tastes the air, and every deep-drawn breath is sweet. Its beginning has the pleasure of a great stretching yawn. It flashes in the brain, and the whole world glows outside your eyes. A man may have lived all his life in the gray, and the land and trees of him dark and somber. The events, even the important ones, may have trooped by faceless and pale, and then the glory so that a cricket song sweetens his ears. The smell of the earth rises, chanting to his nose, and dappling light under a tree blesses his eyes. Then a man pours outward a torrent of him, and yet he is not diminished. And I guess a man's importance in the world can be measured by the quality and number of his glories. It is a lonely thing, but it relates us to the world. It is the mother of all creativeness, and it sets each man separate from all other men. I don't know how it will be in the years to come. There are monstrous changes taking place in the world, forces shaping a future whose face we do not know. Some of these forces seem evil to us, perhaps not in themselves, but because their tendency is to eliminate other things we hold good. It is true that two men can lift a bigger stone than one man. A group can build automobiles quicker and better than one man, and bread from a huge factory is cheaper and more uniform. When our food and clothing and housing are all born in the complication of mass production, mass method is bound to get into our thinking and to eliminate all other thinking. In our time, mass or collective production has entered our economics, our politics, and even our religion, so that some nations have substituted the idea collective for the idea God. This in my time is the danger. There is great tension in the world, tension toward a breaking point, and men are unhappy and confused. At such a time, it seems natural and good to me to ask myself these questions. What do I believe in? What must I fight for, and what must I fight against? Our species is the only creative species, and it has only one creative instrument, the individual mind and spirit of a man. Nothing was ever created by two men. There are no good collaborations, whether in music, in art, in poetry, in mathematics, in philosophy. Once the miracle of creation has taken place, the group can build and extend it, but the group never invents anything. The prescience lies in the lonely mind of a man. And now the forces marshaled around the concept of the group have declared a war of extermination on that preciousness, the mind of man. By disparagement, by starvation, by repressions, forced direction, and the stunning hammer blows of conditioning, the free roving mind is being pursued, roped, blunted, drugged. It is a sad, suicidal course our species seems to have taken. And this I believe that the free, exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes, undirected. And this I must fight against, any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. This is what I am and what I am about. I can understand why a system built on a pattern must try to destroy the free mind, for this is one thing which can, by inspection, destroy such a system. Surely I can understand this, and I hate it, and I will fight against it to preserve the one thing that separates us from the uncreative beasts. If the glory can be killed, we are lost.
I have the um, distinction of writing the citation for Ralph Ellison's honorary degree at Brown University. And in order to do that, I had to reread all of his work. And I want to, uh, in honor of him, read this very small, insignificant citation. Ralph Waldo Ellison, frontiersman, folklorist, comic storyteller, musicologist, photographer, sculptor, novelist, cultural essayist, and trustee of American constitutionalism. Your long attention span in life, art, and public service revitalizes our national faith and personal moral responsibility and artistic discipline. Your stance in confronting our swiftly changing world is the best tradition of the explorers, the thinker-tinkerers of geography and jazz. Your narrative techniques meld vernacular and classical modes with elegance, conscientiousness, and healing power. Now, Stellison has written for me a profound book called Invisible Man. I remember when I was living in that low-life place, Los Angeles, and looked for this novel in the school library. I found it in the science fiction section. What I'm going to read is the first chapter after his prologue, where, in effect, he gets his introduction into uh, what I call the American nightmare. This is, um, for all intents and purposes, something we used to refer to as the Circe scene, or the scene whereby men were transformed into swine. It goes a long way back, some 20 years. All my life, I have been looking for something. And everywhere I turned, someone tried to tell me what it was. I accepted their answers, too, though they were often in contradiction and even self-contradictory. I was naive. I was looking for myself and asking everyone except myself questions which I and only I could answer. It took me a long time and much pain, painful boomeranging of my expectations to achieve a realization everyone else appears to have been born with, that I, was, I am nobody but myself. But first, I had to discover that I am an invisible man. And yet, I am no freak of nature nor of history. I was in the cards, other things having been equal or unequal, 85 years ago. I am not ashamed of my grandparents for having been slaves. I am only ashamed of myself for having at one time been ashamed. About 85 years ago, they were told that they were free, united with others of our country in everything pertaining to the common good, and in everything social, separate, like the fingers of the hand. And they believed it. They exulted in it. They stayed in their place, worked hard, and brought up my father to do the same. But my grandfather is the one. He was an odd old guy, my grandfather, and I am told I take after him. It was he who caused the trouble. On his deathbed, he called my father to him and said, Son, after I'm gone, I want you to keep up the good fight. I never told you, but our life is a war, and I have been a traitor all my born days. 
a spy in the enemy's country. Ever since I took up my gun, I give up my gun back in Reconstruction. Live with your head in the lion's mouth. I want you to overcome him with yeses, undermine him with grins, agree him to death and destruction. Let him swallow you till they vomit or bust wide open. They thought the old man had gone out of his mind. He had been the meekest of men. The younger children were rushed from the room, the shades drawn, and the flame of the lamp turned so low that it sputtered on the wick like the old man's breathing. Learn it to the young ones, he whispered fiercely. Then he died. But my folks were more alarmed over his last words than over his dying. It was as though he had not died at all. His words caused so much anxiety. I was warned emphatically to forget what he had said, and indeed, this is the first time it has been mentioned outside the family circle. It had a tremendous effect upon me, however. I could never be sure of what he meant. Grandfather had been a quiet old man who never made any trouble. Yet on his deathbed, he had called himself a traitor and a spy, and he had spoke of his meekness as a dangerous activity. It became a constant puzzle, which lay unanswered in the back of my mind. And whenever things went well for me, I remembered my grandfather and felt guilty and uncomfortable. It was as though I was carrying out his advice in spite of myself, and to make it worse, everyone loved me for it. I was praised by the most lily-white men of the town. I was considered an example of desirable contact, conduct, just as my grandfather had been. And what puzzled me was that the old man had defined it as treachery. When I was praised for my conduct, I felt a guilt that in some way I was doing something that was really against the wishes of the white folks, that if they understood, they would have desired me to act just the opposite, that I should have been sulky and mean, and that really would have been what they wanted, even though they were fooled and thought they wanted me to act as I did. It made me afraid that same day they would look upon me as a traitor and I would be lost. Still, I was most afraid of to act any other way because they didn't like it that, at that. The old man's words were like a curse. On my graduation day, I delivered an oration in which I showed that humility was the secret, indeed, the very essence of progress. <laughs>